We're headed for Isaiah 54, but we're going to make a stop on the way at Revelation chapter 20. You can turn to both places, but Revelation 20 is where we will start ever so briefly. A few weeks ago on Sunday, as we began our current subsection of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, the section in which Paul describes Israel, Israel in his day blinded, Israel yet future, the scales dropping from their eyes and repentant. Um, we, we notice, well, isn't it a happy coincidence that we're where we are in Isaiah on Wednesdays, looking at Israel's repentance and the return of her Redeemer that follows her repentance. Didn't plan it that way. Just a happy coincidence, you know, if you believe in that kind of thing. But one of the things that we talked about as we embarked on that, on this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, we talked about the two errors that people make looking at Paul's words regarding Israel. We said on the one hand, there are those who marginalize those three chapters. They're not important. They're a parenthetical aside. They really don't have anything to do with Paul's main point. And we said the other big error that people make is they allegorize those words. Israel isn't really Israel when Paul is talking or when the prophets are speaking. It's allegory. It's metaphor. And it's really talking about the church, which of course it's not. Someone asked me um, just recently, when we're in the Old Testament, how can we be sure? How can we know whether Paul is talking about, I'm sorry, whether the Old Testament prophets are talking about Israel or the church? And I said, well, you do have to be careful because sometimes in the Old Testament, when we read Israel, it means Israel. And other times in the Old Testament, when we read Israel, it means Israel. It's possible I was a little snotty. And I shouldn't have been, and I apologize, but I shouldn't have been given how many churches, how many pastors, how many commentators teach and preach replacement theology. That the church has replaced Israel, and we have to do that sort of mental substitution when we read prophetic scripture which isn't true. People believe that and teach it with absolutely no foundation. The church is a mystery, Paul says. To the extent that it's in the Old Testament at all, it's in the Old Testament concealed. And only in the New Testament is the church revealed. So when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Zephaniah and others speak of Israel, they mean Israel. Biblical Interpretation 101, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, or you'll end up with nonsense. nonsense. <laughs> All of which we talked about, and I don't need to reteach tonight, other than to say if this is new territory, if what I just said isn't review, but it's blowing your mind right now, grab me, because I can point you towards some resources, or go back into the archives on the website and look for the very first message on Romans 9, and it'll at least be an introduction to some of this. But the reason I bring it up tonight is that Israel is not the only subject, it's, it's, not, it's not the only thing subjected to allegorization in Scripture. When we get to the prophetic books, when we get to Revelation, 
we, we see people who are inclined to allegory go crazy, go to the zoo, which is to be expected because once you give yourself permission to allegorize one thing, it's up for grabs, right? You've, you've opened the floodgates. It's like eating potato chips. Why would you stop at just one? Once you give yourself permission to make up new rules of biblical interpretation, there's an overwhelming temptation to keep reinterpreting things. And a frequent target of allegorization, where, where we say, well, it says this, but it really means something else, is what you and I would call the millennial kingdom. Millennial, a thousand, millennium, a thousand years, it, it kind of, if you're going to allegorize Israel, you kind of have to allegorize the millennial kingdom because that has everything to do with Israel in, in our view, in our interpretation. But specifically, as we, as we get into more and more a section of Isaiah that deals with the millennial kingdom, I thought it would be useful to look at some ways that people misconstrue, misinterpret, misteach this idea of a literal, physical reign of Jesus. Because so it, it's so intrinsic to how we're going to be reading Scripture. It's worth acknowledging there are going to be some people that strongly, strenuously disagree. I do this, I do this with a little bit of trepidation because I hate preaching against in general, I like to teach what is and not talk so much about what isn't. But if I never mention some of the ways that people misconstrue, misexplain, misinterpret some of these big concepts, the first time someone comes along and says, oh, you simple country Calvary bumpkin, no one actually believes that, you might be thrown for a loop. And I say that because I know people who have been. People who have been caught just horribly off guard the first time someone says, well, there's another way of looking at that. No one, no one who has actually studied the deeper things of Scripture, no one who has actually gone to school for theology really believes there's a future for Israel, really believes that there's a literal kingdom. Oh, how silly. And, and, and people walk away saying, wow, I had no idea. I never imagined. No one told me. Lead me into this deeper knowledge, would you please? Explain to me this greater wisdom that you possess our, because our pride likes that. Oh, you're going to let me in on the secrets? On the deep things? On the mysteries? Oh, give me. Give me, give me, give me but don't tell those guys over there. It, I, I, know, I know people to whom that's happened, and some of them have never recovered. So, so it's worth, from my perspective, it's worth knowing before we get much deeper into Isaiah, especially these chapters that you and I would say describe the millennial kingdom, it's worth preparing ourselves for some of the ways in which people aggressively, condescendingly, disagree. Um, I said Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's one. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. That's two. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or his hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's three. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's four. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over the second the death, death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with them a thousand years. That's five. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. That's six. Six times. Six times in less than a chapter. We read about a thousand-year kingdom. But there are people who will tell you no, 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 that must be something else. And having decided that, that will inform how they read the chapters that are in front of us. So go ahead and go back to Isaiah 54. and We'll actually look at our text for tonight, because if we don't get to it soon, we probably won't get to it at all. We'll back up to verse 9, and we'll remember from last week, Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53. See, you want deep things, I got deep things. 54 comes after 53. Isaiah 53, Israel's song of repentance. The cry of repentance of the future faithful remnant of Israel, confessing their national sin. That they didn't recognize Jesus, that they rejected Jesus, that they handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54, on the heels of that, we have God announcing remarriage. We're the bride of Christ. Israel's the wife of Yahweh. And in Isaiah 54, on the heels of Israel's repentance, God says, let's get remarried. God divorced Israel, separated at least from Judah. But on the heels of Israel's repentance, says, okay, that's behind us now. You've come back to me. We can enter into a new covenant, a permanent covenant. It's just going to be like my promise to Noah, we read in verse 9. Just like my promise to Noah in the sense that I'm, I'm, I'm never going to do this again. I told Noah I would never again destroy the world by water. My promise to you, verses 9 and 10, I'm never going to set you aside again, Israel. My kindness shall never depart from you, verse 10. The covenant of peace between us shall never be removed. Same verse. Why? Because with Israel repentant, her sins can be forgiven. Israel's sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Nothing will separate Israel from the love of God, which is theirs in Christ Jesus, their Lord. They get to claim Romans 8.29 for themselves, the same as we do today. That's a promise that, that we get to enjoy today, that we get to abide in today, that Israel will one day be able to claim as their own when they look upon the one whom they pierced and repent. 
I didn't want a rabbit trail on Sunday, but when I was making that fourth point about, about Romans 10.9 not teaching easy believism, and when I was talking about repentance, we don't have to repent for all of our sins to come to Christ, but we do need to leave our sin, our unbelief, our self-reliance, our self-righteousness. If you have any doubt about the relationship between repentance and salvation, look at Israel. Look at the way that Scripture describes Israel's repentance. Look in Isaiah 53. Look in Zechariah 12. Mourning. Weeping. Didn't want a rabbit trail on Sunday, so I rabbit trailed here instead. Isaiah 54. Israel's confessed and repented, and in doing so has laid hold of God's promise. Verse 11. O oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. But, excuse me, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, all your walls of precious stones. The storms will cease now. Tribulation will end now. Persecution is over as of now. As of now, Jerusalem will be glorified. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children, because Jesus will be dwelling in their midst, literally, physically. Verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. Only believers enter the kingdom, right? That's the sheep and goats judgment we read about in Matthew 25. But throughout the thousand years, new people are born with a sin nature. But Jesus will be continuing to enforce holiness and righteousness, providing protection, ensuring peace. Verse 15, Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. This could refer to the Battle of Armageddon, the last phase of which occurs after Jesus' return. These could be words of encouragement. Hey, Antichrist and his armies are going to make one last stand, but don't worry, I'm going to preserve you. Or, or it could refer to the battle at the end of the thousand years that we just had gotten to in Revelation 20 where Satan is unchained. Either way, God says, I've got this. I've got you. Verse 16 Behold, I've created the blacksmith. I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. And I've created the spoiler to destroy. Now, in the near term, we're, we're comfortable with the idea that Assyria was used of God to chastise first Israel, then Judah. But when their work was done, when their purpose had been fulfilled, God used the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians. But when God was done using the Babylonians to chastise Judah to carry them off into exile, they fell to the Medes and the Persians. And later the Medes and the Persians fell to the Greeks and so forth. That's in the past. Thinking to the future... God uses Antichrist and his armies to chasten Israel, uses Satan's armies for his purposes at the end of the tribulation. Really, they're both Satan's armies, but you, you get the distinction. God says all of those times, 
all of those powers, all of that oppression, I allowed. I, I, I allowed those, those empires to be raised up for my purposes. And when they had fulfilled my purposes, I also ensured that they fell. And I'll do it again, he says. Verse 17, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. The God of Israel will defend Israel, will protect Israel, will preserve Israel, will prosper Israel. Why? That's what a husband does for a wife. Now, those eight verses are not the best, mostest, clearest picture of the millennial kingdom that we find anywhere in Scripture. There are more clear, more dramatic pictures coming. But again, before we get to them, and we've had some of them already. There have been, there have been tidbits scattered all through the book of Isaiah, glimpses all along. But before we get to the, to the, to the super clear things like, like chapter 55, what is it? Is it verse 10? No, verse... 12, for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Or, or we get to, to chapter 65. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt, destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Before we get deeper into this study of the millennial kingdom, worth pausing, I think, to sensitize ourselves to the fact some people read this really differently. The interpretation, the understanding that, that we've been working with for the last 50-some chapters, the theologians put under the category of premillennialism. Israel repents, Jesus returns in Revelation 19, the kingdom begins Revelation 20 and continues for a thousand years. We read it six times in less than a chapter premillennial. Jesus returns pre, before the millennium, a thousand years, which would seem to be the plain reading of the text, right? But there are others. Postmillennialism, post means after, millennium still means a thousand. Jesus returns after a millennium, but it's not a millennium because it's more than, been more than a thousand years. So millennium now is figurative, it's allegorical, it's a long time. And the kingdom isn't physical, it's spiritual. The kingdom is in us. So the post-millennialist combines the spiritual and the physical kingdoms. The kingdom's already begun, and Jesus will return at the end of it. What's the end of it? The end of it is when the kingdom has expanded and overtaken the earth and driven out sin to the point where all of the peace and prosperity that we're reading about becomes reality. Jesus doesn't usher in the kingdom. The church ushers in the kingdom. And when we've done what we're here to do to bring peace and prosperity to the earth, then and only then Jesus returns. Where do you get that? Where does that come from? Mostly from thin air. You take some, you take some great commission verses about go forth into all the nations, go into the outermost parts. You misinterpret a couple of the kingdom parables and, 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 and you add in some, some new age flavor about peace overtaking the world. 
and, and you end up with a post-millennial interpretation. Really what's driving it, if you look at it historically, if you go into the first people who advanced this kind of thinking, they were, and we talked about this in Romans, flailing about trying to come up with an understanding that didn't depend on a literal Israel because Israel had been dispersed and no one could imagine Israel being regathered, even though scripture says it would be. It was also influenced by people looking at the book of Revelation and saying, we don't know what to do with this. So, so it's basically cobbled together from spare parts. People who believe that would disagree with me, obviously. But I disagree with them because the Bible never says the world will get better and better and better. The Bible says, no, if, if the days were not shortened, there wouldn't be a human race for Jesus to return to. And the return of Christ, the verses that describe it, do not describe Jesus returning amidst peace and prosperity. He returns and brings peace and prosperity, but his actual return is violent. It's cataclysmic. It's apocalyptic. There are relatively few post-millennialists in the world today. The 20th century ward if you'll pardon the expression, with post-millennialism, because World War I and World War II and Vietnam and so forth really challenge anyone to believe that we're getting better and better and better as a species. The other, the other issue with post-millennialism is, if, is if, you, if you debate someone who sincerely believes this, and there are those who do, and you ask, where does the Bible teach it? Don't, don't, I'm not asking you to proof text anything, but take me to the passage or passages of Scripture that, that portray this, that explain this. There isn't a good answer to that question. They, they, they have to, to reinterpret things very broadly um, and not specifically at all. Interestingly, if you go to the beginning of chapter 54, and you ask a post-millennialist to read this chapter, understanding, by the way, that Israel's out of the picture. Because between now and the return of Christ, it's all church all the time in their view. What do you do with the beginning of Isaiah 54? Sing, O barren, break forth into singing. For more are the children of the desolate than children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtain of your dwellings. Don't spare, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. Your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. What does the post-millennial interpreter do with that? Well, they'll, they'll say, as we would, short term, that's the return to Babylon. I'm sorry, the return from Babylon. But there's got to be a longer-term interpretation because only 42,000 go back with Ezra. The scope of the return from exile doesn't really match the, the grandeur of the language here in Isaiah 54. So what's the long-term interpretation? The post-millennialist will say Pentecost. Because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 
gives way to the evangelization of the world. And what we read in verses 2 and 3 about the, the, the abundance of children is the abundance of believers that have come into the kingdom since Pentecost. William Carey preached a famous sermon about world missions resting on exactly that interpretation. What do you do with the fact that God says Zion there in Isaiah 54? Well, again, the church has replaced Israel. And so when you go to verse 12... I'll lay your foundations with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal. Well, clearly, that's talking about the new Jerusalem. That's talking about the new Jerusalem of the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 because there's no biblically significant future for earthly Jerusalem on their view. So we, in effect... The church is setting up the kingdom. It's the church having this abundance of kids. It makes me wonder, post-millennialism, if there isn't going to be a renewal of interest in that reading, in that view, in the days of Antichrist. Because we know Antichrist is a false Christ or a counterfeit Christ. Is part of his line going to be, you did it. You made it. You fulfilled my plans. You're ready for my return now. And I can't help but hearing Age of Aquarius in my mind. Be because there's a lot of similarity, right? So that's postmillennialism. The other major prevalent approach, the third one, premillennial and postmillennialism, the other way to look at Revelation 20 and, and, and then to back into a reading of the rest of prophetic scripture is amillennialism. A without millennial still means thousand. There is no thousand years in an amillennialist interpretation. This is more popular. This is more prevalent. It goes back to the days of Augustine, actually goes even further back. It goes back to Jerome. But Augustine really kicked it into high gear. And a lot of pastors and commentators that, that I respect, that you probably read, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, are amillennialists. They're Presbyterians, and, and, and those things go together. In their view, the thousand years is also non-literal, is also happening right now. Satan is bound today... Revelation 20 is in progress. Satan is in chains. Yes, there's evil in the world. Yes, Satan has a certain amount of influence, but not nearly the influence he could have if he wasn't bound. And one day, Jesus will return and set up the new heavens and the new earth all at once. No rapture, no kingdom. The kingdom is today. It's in our hearts. No future for Israel. Israel's done. In a lot of ways, postmillennialism and amillennialism are are kind of the same thing. They're both anti-millennialism. The, the prophecy tracks along similar lines. The difference is post-millennialism is at least optimistic. The world's going to get converted. Amillennialism is, is less optimistic. Well, we're just going to kind of struggle along until Jesus comes back. Amillennialists look at Isaiah 54 and, and in my experience, there, there, there might be counterexamples, but doing a quick survey of, of what the guys on my shelves have to say about the chapter, they, the, the amillennialists that I looked at this week stick exclusively to a historical reading, which is consistent. 
Um, most amillennialists are also preterists, and they think that, that the events in Revelation all happened during or before 70 AD, around the, the, the time that, that Rome sacked Jerusalem. And so reading prophecy in the rearview mirror is very on brand. So chapter 54, the, the, the guys that I looked at, well, verses 1 through 3, Israel's population was decimated, Judah's population was decimated during and following the Babylonian invasion. But upon being restored to the land, that will be corrected. Uh, people will be having kids together. There'll be a population explosion. Verses 4 to 8, have no fear because Jerusalem's husband, God, will reclaim her not after the tribulation, but after the 70 years. You've been punished enough. You needed to be chastised a little bit, but, but now we can pick up where we left off. Verses 9 through 10, I'm going to have compassion on you. Like I had for the world in the day of Noah, the emphasis is not on a covenant, it's, not, it's on God's compassion. And verses 11 through 17, God restores Israel to the land, comforts his people, rebuilds the city, keeps them secure against their enemies. It starts to break down there, doesn't it? <laughs> because Israel was not secure from the time of their return to the time of Christ. After Christ, well, Israel forfeited her promises. The Abrahamic covenant, it turns out, wasn't unconditional. Israel forfeited her promises, and after that, of course, Israel is persecuted. And we don't know how they're back in the land, but they are, and that's inconvenient, but, but so it goes. It has no biblical significance. What's your first reaction listening to, a, to an amillennial reading of Isaiah 54? Man, it's weak sauce, isn't it? And, and the amillennialist would say, no, it's, 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 A, it's the Bible, and B, it's God. And, it, and it's God chastising his people, but then miraculously restoring them to the land, bringing them back from exile. He preserved them during exile. And having chastised them, he didn't destroy them. He kept his promise. He brought them back into the land, and they had an opportunity to welcome their Savior. But God was showing himself strong and merciful and gracious on behalf of Israel. And all of that is true. But it's, it's not as fantastic, it's not as glorious, it's not as marvelous, it's not as wonderful as when God does it again. When there's a greater deliverance by a greater deliverer. And, and that's really... It's hard, I think you have to work hard to not see that that's Isaiah's point, God's point speaking through Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 48, Cyrus gets credit for Israel being returned from exile. Cyrus is the deliverer in those chapters. Why? Because God's setting up a comparison. Cyrus delivers from that exile, but one greater than Cyrus is going to restore Israel from an even greater exile and defend her against an even greater Babylon. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to not see the glory and the grandeur and the faithfulness and, and all of God's attributes on display bringing Israel back from exile but it pales in comparison to what God is going to do next. There's a principle in logic 
called Occam's Razor, which says basically when in doubt, when, when you're confronted by multiple possibilities, when in doubt, pick the simplest one. Bet on the simplest one, you'll be right most of the time. And, and I think that there's a similar principle in interpreting Scripture. When in doubt, believe what it says. Rather than inventing a convoluted, complicated, deeper workaround. When reading it at face value makes sense, read it at face value. Because when we start to allegorize the kingdom, when we start to allegorize Israel, when we start to say Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham wasn't unconditional, it was conditional. When we have to, I didn't even talk about this, but Revelation 20, on the way to getting where we're going, the Bible teaches multiple resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 20, a bunch of different places. The amillennialist, the postmillennialist has to ignore all of that. He'll come in again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Let's just heap it all together in one big pile. When we complicate things unnecessarily, we end up with a house of cards that'll blow over, that, that, that will not withstand pressure, that won't stand up to close examination. But there's another principle that shows up in logic and it shows up in math. And I don't know that it has a name, but there are people who look at Occam's razor and say, that's not exactly true. When, when, when we say the simplest explanation is usually the best, what we really mean is the most elegant or beautiful explanation is usually what's true. And the mathematicians will say what confuses us is simple equations like E equals MC squared. Simple equation, five characters, describes everything we know about superatomic particles. <laughs> it's simple, but it's profound and it's elegant. Euler's theorem, E to the pi I equals negative one. I don't know what it means either. But e to the pi i equals negative 1 is sometimes got called God's equation. It's re regarded among mathematicians as the most beautiful of all mathematical equations because it unites disparate branches of mathematics into one very simple statement. But behind that one simple statement is, is elegance that I don't begin to have the math to describe or appreciate. And, and my point is, hermeneutics is kind of like that. When we read the Bible at face value, when we allow the simple word to speak to us simply, we also see the most beauty. Beauty that's obscured when we invent out of whole cloth convoluted workarounds for the inconvenient reality of Israel. When we read the simple word of God, we see the beautiful fact that God didn't set aside Israel. He unites the church in Israel. 
and he manifests all of his attributes, his mercy, his power, his justice, his long-suffering in delivering Israel. And the result is elegant. The result is matchless beauty. Some philosophers take this idea and they say, well, this is, this is your plan for living. This is the key to life. When in doubt on the, on the road that you're walking, when in doubt which way to turn, choose the beautiful thing. Take the beautiful path. Make the beautiful choice. I don't think that works. I think that's actually a little dangerous because Satan was the most beautiful of all the angels. Disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan can counterfeit beauty, which is how Antichrist comes to power. I think it's safer and better, when in doubt, to do the God thing, the Jesus thing, the loving thing, to do the simple biblical thing. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? Do that and see if we follow the simple word if God doesn't bring about the beautiful thing in our lives. Father, we are in awe of everything that you are, all of your attributes on display. Your plan to rescue and redeem humanity. Your refusal to abandon Israel. Your steadfast devotion. Your faithfulness. Even when we are faithful, you, I'm sorry, even when we're faithless, you are faithful. You cannot deny yourself. And we see that no more, nowhere more clearly than in your singular affection for your people Israel. Your mercy toward them is breathtaking. Your forgiveness awesome in every sense of the word. And that we get to partake of that forgiveness. That we get to be grafted in to those promises. That we get to enjoy that inheritance today is humbling. Spirit, keep our eyes open to the enormity of your love for us, the greatness of your mercy toward us. Your grace. Give us eyes to see the beauty. To walk in awe and in wonder.